Well, it's great to uh, be back together with you at Church of the Cross. I was back last week, but um, it's nice to be back this morning and to have an opportunity to share God's Word together with you. I've been thinking a lot over the last several months about foundations, about the centrality of our Christian faith, and so what we're going to do today is begin a series that will last five or six weeks uh, entitled The Gospel of God. And based on Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, you may be wondering, well, now you're not wondering anymore, why you picked up this card on your way into church this morning. At least I hope you did, and if you didn't, be sure to grab one. Uh, This is my version of a high-glossy, super-hip and cool handout, um, which is simply the biblical text. And what I want you to do over the next five or six weeks is commit these seven verses to memory. I know that many of us probably don't practice memorizing scripture these days, but I want to encourage you to do that. We're going to use Romans 1, 1 through 7 as our guide in looking at this central reality. Without the gospel, there's no church, there's no Christianity, there's no message, there's no witness, there's no power. And so we're going to set up our tent in this field for the next few weeks and dig in and try to squeeze, if you will, every drop of life and truth out of this text and wisdom and insight. And I want you to have this text in your hearts over the course of this series. So please um, take this challenge up, stick this in your Bible or your wallet or your purse, carry it around with you when you're writing on the T, and commit these seven verses to memory. These verses address three main questions. We're not going to address all of those this morning, but over the course of the series, we will. First, where did the gospel come from? These are questions about the source or origin of the gospel. Second, what is the gospel about? So these are questions about content. What is its subject matter? And third, what does the gospel accomplish? That is, questions about results. What is the gospel to bring about. So that's our plan, to look at the source of the gospel, the content of the gospel, and the results of the gospel. And digging into these subjects, I hope, will increase our confidence, deepen our delight in God, and shape our expectations of what our lives as followers of Jesus are to be all about. So we're going to begin today with verse 1, which I'll read in a few minutes. And our first of two consecutive looks at source questions. Where did it come from? And how did it get to us? Those are key and critical questions when we think about the gospel. Questions of origin are important in all kinds of areas of life. Consider for a moment food and drink. Chipotle, despite their recent bad press, wants you to know that all of their beef and pork is free-range and that all of their ingredients are not genetically modified. Or consider the farm-to-table movement, where restaurants pride themselves on using the most wholesome, fresh, and locally grown, sustainably grown ingredients. And one of the many reasons that they do this is so their customers know that what they're putting into their body comes from the purest of sources and is the freshest that it can be. Or think about bottled water companies always competing to compel us about the uniqueness of their source. Uh, Evian, maybe the leader in this work, uh, has this really amazing video on their website with like moving symphony music behind vistas of the Alps and a hydrogeologist named Jean-Christophe Bliny explaining to you why their source, formed by glaciers millions of years ago, is so pristine and pure and perfect. I mean, it's just water, but they want you to know that the origins matter. 
They matter in the world of shopping as well. Just the other day, I was searching for a tool on Amazon, reading some of the reviews, and one of the reviewers said, you know, the first version of this I got was made in Taiwan. The second one was made in China, and there's a huge quality difference between the two. So if you buy one, make sure you get the one made in Taiwan. He was warning potential buyers. And that doesn't even address, obviously, the ethical questions around production that we're all fairly aware of and are significant and important. So questions of origin matter. If the source matters in food and drink, and it matters in shopping, then you can see where I'm going. It matters incredibly more so in the area of religion or of spirituality. Because this isn't just about your physical health or how long your tool will hold up and do its job for you in daily use. This is about your soul, your life, your heart, your understanding of the world. And I would put to you, if you're going to give yourself to something, to the worship of an ultimate being, to a particular vision of the kingdom or of the good life, of human flourishing, then you want to know and have confidence that your source is pure and right and true. So as Paul opens up this greatest, in many ways, of theological letters and writings, his opening words address this question of the source, even as he is introducing himself to the recipients of the letter in Rome. Verse 1, you can look on the card, Paul, a servant, really a slave, and I'll get to that later, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He says three things in this opening first verse that we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to take them in reverse order. First, that this gospel is of God. Second, that Paul is called to be an apostle who is set apart for this gospel. And third, that Paul, as he fulfills his vocation of apostleship and proclaiming the gospel, does so as a slave of the King, the Messiah, Jesus. All of this tells us where the gospel comes from and how it gets to us. And this is critical for us today, for our confidence and our courage as we move forward as God's people. So, first, this is the gospel, of, or, or good news, of God. That's the Christian claim. God is the source, the origin of the gospel. It was not our idea, and is not our idea. It did not come from humankind in any way, shape, or form. It is not, the gospel is not, the culmination of the best of human thinking about life, God, and spirituality. It's not the end of a long train of insight and thoughts on our part. No, this was an, an eruption into the midst of history and into the midst of humanity from God himself in the person of his son Jesus that has forever shifted reality and what is possible for you and for me and for any human being. Jesus was, as John's prologue says, light shining in the darkness. And the gospel, if you will, is like a bolt of lightning at, that, that startles us at night, but that also quite suddenly and brilliantly lights up everything around us. It is the revelation full of power from God to us, something that God himself has accomplished and that God himself has communicated and made known. This is the gospel of God. God entered the world directly 
in the person of his son Jesus to accomplish and communicate the gospel to us. The Nicene Creed affirms this about Jesus, that he was God from God. We'll say this a little bit later in our service. Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. They're getting the point across that Jesus, in reality, was no different than the Father, that he is God. As John says at the beginning of his gospel, the word was with God and the word was God. And he enters into history bearing witness to himself and accomplishing the acts of redemption that are the centrality of this good news, the gospel. Which is to say that God uses no intermediary. He, the source himself, entered the stage and lived directly in front of us and spoke directly to us The good news that he lived and shared, therefore, has no humanly modified ingredients. It has come straight to us from God himself. And this is critically important for Christianity. If you're here as a Christian and this is who you are, it's critically important for you. And if you're here investigating the Christian faith, it's critically important to understand this, that the heart of what we believe and preach and think and live into is a gift of revelation that we could have never provoked from a God who is generous, who wants to give his people life. It's good news from another world. Imagine that we're all in the forest at night looking for a lost diamond. We know it's there and we're searching with all of our might, but the night is dark, there is no moon, and the batteries in our headlamps, if you're cool, and flashlights, if you're still struggling to get there, um, are getting weaker and weaker. Then all of a sudden, There's a flash from the heavens and a beam of overwhelming light that focuses right down on a patch of the forest floor in the middle of which rests the diamond, which is now easily visible as it sparkles in its radiance in the light that's shining upon it. That's the gospel of God bursting into our situation of darkness. So Paul says the source of this gospel is God. But how then does this gospel get to us? And I'll move here to the second point. Because we weren't there, at least none of us in this room saw the original lightning bolt that was Jesus himself. We didn't walk with Jesus, we didn't hear him talk, and neither did those to whom Paul was writing in Rome. So this is addressed by the second point that Paul makes in this first verse. Again, working backwards. He says that he is called to be an apostle, and that as an apostle he has been set apart for the gospel of God. So while this gospel erupted into history directly from God, the divinely ordained method for the typical spread of this gospel to the nations, which is the heart of God, was through the spirit-empowered witness of the apostles. It was still from God. He is still its source and origin. But now God says that he's going to use the divinely inspired, divinely called, divinely set apart, and divinely empowered human agency of the apostles who had seen and lived in the presence of the original bolt of lightning, Jesus. And that is how the Romans, that's how the Romans, and that's how you and I, if we have, have come to know this gospel. We see this pattern already developing. We read out of Luke 9, that little passage where Jesus sends out his apostles And they preach the kingdom of God and they heal. He sends them out with his power to do his work, to spread the news about the kingdom. And then in that famous passage at the end of Matthew's gospel, he commissions the 11, the apostles, 
to go into all nations and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded them. That's their job. God wanted all the nations to hear about this great news through the apostles' testimony and witness. The word apostle actually means sent. And the apostles were those who had been with and seen Jesus, who were now sent, set apart, as Paul says here, to proclaim this good news and gospel to the world. The expansion of the church throughout history, of the company of those who hear the gospel and respond to it with faith, is built on the testimony of the apostles. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, as he talks about the household of God being, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, end quote. God's pure and unadulterated gospel was entrusted to the apostles, who in turn, in the power of the Holy Spirit, went out and proclaimed that gospel to the world. Paul to the Gentiles, Peter and James to the Jews. And the book of Acts tells us and narrates for us this story of apostolic proclamation, of apostolic witness empowered by the Spirit, spreading this good news about Jesus as Lord. Now, you might be sitting here and say for a second, well, Mark, I've never heard Jesus, obviously. I didn't live back then, and I've never heard the apostles. So how do I know that I'm getting the source? How do I know I'm getting the true source? This all happened far too long ago. There's a great epistemic distance between me and these events that you're describing. But I would say, along with the church for just a moment, not so fast. We can't go that fast and make those claims. So to keep this from becoming one big game of telephone over the centuries, with great potential for the gospel to be distorted with each successive generation, each successive passing on of the gospel, God, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, in his great wisdom, preserved for us the apostolic testimony and witness in what we now call the New Testament, the scriptures. These 27 books became the New Testament canon, on the basis of their connection to apostolic authority. The standard test for a piece of scripture to become part of the New Testament canon was, yes, its content, but also its connection to the apostles. And they preserve, these texts do, the authentic, authoritative, spirit-inspired testimony to the gospel that Jesus proclaimed and entrusted to his apostles, and that the early church knew through its proximity in time to the apostles themselves. It took a couple hundred, few hundred years for this all to work itself out. But God ensures this testimony would continue. And what this means is that you and I today, nearly 2,000 years later, can take up these texts of Scripture, as we're doing this morning with Romans, and actually hear the Spirit-appointed, Spirit-inspired apostle speak through that Spirit directly to us, God's people. This is the gospel of God coming through God's chosen mouthpiece, and we are now able to hear it clearly. At least that's the Christian claim. That's at the heart of our faith. Let me say for just a moment, we we don't only hear it, but we, the church, carry forward this apostolic declaration of the gospel of God. Think about that Nicene Creed definition of the church, the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, meaning that the church is both built on the foundation of the apostles' authoritative testimony about the gospel, and that the church is the entity through which that apostolic witness 
into the world continues. The church is apostolic in both foundation and in function. We bear witness in the world to Jesus as Lord, to the pure gospel from the source, God himself. And as we communicate this life-changing gospel to the world around us, these 27 texts of the New Testament preserve the standard to which the churches and our communication of this gospel in the present day is to conform. They teach and proclaim what is right and real and true. And that's why the church continues to read and study and digest these spirit-inspired texts as we gather week after week in worship, as we gather in small groups and triads throughout the week, or more informally, as we take up the daily office, we come to these texts to hear and find the spirit-attested truth about the gospel of God, which changes our lives and strengthens and challenges us. When someone, when anyone speaks or writes about God and his gospel, we are to test what he or she says by the scriptures to discern whether it really fits with what God has spoken. And if it doesn't fit, then we are to reject it. That's a very short and crass description of what took place in the Reformation. The authoritative apostolic scriptures preserve the message and keep it clear and free from contamination. They prevent gospel transmission throughout the ages from being one long and painful and confusing game of telephone that distorts the message that comes out the other side from the source. But how do we know the apostles got it right? I mean, couldn't they have just been deluded and said or written things to serve their own interests so that what we get is not really from God, but is contaminated by lots of humanness? It's possible, of course, and that's a fair question to ask, especially if you're investigating the Christian faith. Paul himself was even accused of this on various occasions by his opponents, as we can pick up from some of his letters. But this is key, and here I want to move to my third and final point from verse 1, which is the first thing that Paul says, is that as Paul fulfills this apostolic vocation, his claim is that he is a slave of the King, the Messiah, Jesus. That's how he begins. It's an odd way to begin in a culture that valued status and honor to describe oneself as a slave. What that means is he is fulfilling this apostolic vocation of proclaiming this gospel in the control of and in the service of the living and risen King Jesus himself, who is at the center of the proclamation. Paul isn't serving himself. He's not proclaiming himself. He is not claiming any rights for himself. He's a slave serving his master who believes in whom he believes, And he proclaims this master as king of the world. Because this master, in Paul's own experience, and we know this from from the letters of the New Testament, has literally turned Paul's life upside down. Completely, radically changed him. And set him on a new path and trajectory. Being a slave of Christ means many things, but I want to point out three, just very briefly, that strengthen our trust in this apostolic witness. These are true here. I'll use Paul, but I would argue they're true of all of the apostles. First, he's passionately concerned about the purity of the word that he proclaims. 
when the Galatians are being fed a distorted gospel, which Paul says isn't a gospel at all, he writes and he makes abundantly clear that this is, and I quote, is not man's gospel. On the contrary, he says that he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, it is pure, Paul says, straight from the source itself, himself, from God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says he refuses to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. And in Colossians, he says that his stewardship, the stewardship that was entrusted to him, was to make the word of God fully known. Being a slave meant that Paul had no interest in being original. He had no interest in making things sound cute or nice or appealing. He had every interest in being faithful with the words that he declared, that they were the words that God had spoken directly to him through his encounter with Jesus, abnormally so from the rest of the apostles, but his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. The purity of the word. Second, Paul seeks only to to please his master as a slave. That's his only job. He says back in Galatians, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I still trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ, he says. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. As a slave of the king, Paul's only desire is to please the king, to preserve his word, and to please his master. And then third, he suffers greatly for this gospel, as did all the apostles, as best as we know. When he finishes this book of Galatians, where his authority has been under question, he writes, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And similarly, in 2 Corinthians, another epistle in which he's dealing with authority questions, Paul repeatedly refers to his sufferings as those marks which authenticate his apostolic testimony and vocation and witness as coming from God. Look, he says, if I was making this up, if I was trying to do myself a favor, I wouldn't suffer in the way that I've suffered as an apostle. I wouldn't go to these troubles. I wouldn't bear sleepless nights and shipwrecks and be stoned and be, uh, have, my, have people turn their backs on me and everything else that I've gone through. If this wasn't worth it, if I was believing a lie, The apostles were concerned for the purity of God's word. They were concerned to please their master and him alone with all the temptations that there are to please the ears of those that they proclaimed this message to. And they suffered, radically so, for this gospel that had changed their lives and a gospel that they had seen change the lives of so many men, women, and children to whom they had gone and proclaimed it. They were witnesses to the powerful work of this gospel that changes the world. Now, in conclusion, if all of this sounds too untenable to you, then I at least want to beg you to consider one perspective, which is that at the heart of the Christian faith, is the affirmation that a man named Jesus, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, who was also divine, died, was literally and physically dead, and yet God raised him from the dead three days later.
That's what this is built on. If God can do that, if that's true, if God has raised his son from the dead, then I want to argue from the greater to the lesser and say that surely this same God who entered and erupted into humanity and history can also ensure through the process of transmission that this pure, life-transforming gospel can be passed on from generation to generation through the witness of his servants and through the testimony preserved for us in the scriptures. The source is critically important. This gospel about Jesus is God's. He entered into the world to accomplish it and to proclaim it in order that the lives of the apostles and all of those who would hear their testimony and hear this gospel could be changed. We can build our lives on this gospel. It is of God. And we can give our lives over to this gospel and to this king with confidence and courage that we have his message within us, changing us, and going out from us into the world. Be confident and be courageous. And wouldn't it be great if in gratitude for the life-changing power and love of God in our lives through the gospel, if we would carry forward the church's apostolic vocation with a radical, radical commitment to the purity of this gospel, not to be innovators, but to pass on what has been given to us with utter clarity about who we are seeking to please, that is God himself, and with a willingness to even suffer for him who suffered for us. Amen.